0: Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Never let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From my birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvellous deeds. Even when I am old and grey, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens, you who have done great things. Who is like you, God? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have delivered. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long, for those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. Let me uh,
1: pause those conversations for the time being um, and bring us back uh, to Psalm 71. Psalm um, Let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help as we uh, open it up together and let it speak to us. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, would you fill us with your spirit now? Would you speak to us by your spirit now? And would you transform us through your word? In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Me and uh, Rachel, my wife, we absolutely love the U.S. office. Um, I'm not necessarily telling you that all of you, whatever age you are, should always watch it. But um, a friend that we trust recommended it to us and we tried it and we weren't sure about the first season. But then we kept going and we just... Fell in love with it it 's hilarious, and the characters you just you, you just love them and so now we find that we, we cannot stop talking about it. We talk about it with each other, we send each other memes of it, and we talk about it a weird amount with the people uh, that we that we see with friends. We find ourselves we, we find someone else who loves it too, and we end up talking to them, to them about it for half an hour about how amazing it is and why and Then when we meet people who haven't seen it. We talk to them about it too and we tell them, oh, you, you tried an episode and you didn't like it, you've got to keep going till the end of the first season, it gets so much better in the second series. We tell them all about why it's amazing. I wonder what the things are for you that you find yourself telling everybody about. Maybe it's a TV program for you as well that you like, or maybe for you it's a bit of tech or an app that you've got you just think is genius, you don't see how anybody could live without it. Or maybe you're one of those wonderful people who actually loves your job or your subject so much that you talk about that all the time, Um, whether or not people have a clue what you're on about. Um, We all have these things that we just naturally really want to tell people about. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that uh, telling people about Jesus is the same as that. It's a lot more complicated to talk about Jesus Than recommending a tv program there's tons more at stake and in our culture there are all sorts of sort of boundaries about what's appropriate and when and so on but the question I want to ask us all this morning is setting aside all the complications do we want to share Jesus and what he's done for us with the people around us is that something we want to do And I imagine there'll be a range of different reactions amongst us. You might be here and actually you're not a Christian yourself yet, so you feel like this doesn't really apply to you. And it may be that the idea of Christians sharing their faith feels a bit uncomfortable and and wrong, either because you believe that religion is a a private thing, or because for you the idea of sharing faith kind of is all tied up with a, a history of imperialism and all sorts of really problematic things. Um, and so you feel uncomfortable with it because of that. I hope if that's you, then this morning will be a helpful uh, chance to get to kind of look inside the heart of a believer who wants to speak about what they found in Jesus. And, and you can see whether the way that the psalm talks about it and um, still feels uncomfortable and, and wrong to you or whether it starts to make a bit more sense. Or it might be that you're, you are a Christian, but if you think, Do I want to tell people about Jesus? The honest answer is, I know that I ought to, but I'm not sure that I ever actually want to. It feels less like something that overflows from you and more like something that occasionally you kind of manage to drag out of yourself because you have a real sense of of guilt about it. Or perhaps it's more that you feel a kind of a heavy burden of worry and concern about the people you love who who don't yet trust Jesus. And, And that's certainly not a bad thing. That's right and natural, but by itself, that can just be exhausting, can't it? It can be almost demoralizing. It makes us not want to think about it because it's, it's hard. Well, if you've been around for them, let me invite you to think back to the, the baptisms that we've had recently here and the part of those where people have stood up at the front and shared something of their testimony, something of their story of what God has done for them. When someone gets up and does that, Does it feel like it's a duty or a burden? Even if they're terrified of of public speaking and they're really nervous, does it feel like a a forced, artificial, uh, kind of manufactured thing to do? When someone stands up and tells what Jesus has done for them like that, I think it feels like the most natural thing in the world, doesn't it? It seems totally obvious that if God has done this for them, that they would want to stand up and tell us about it. It feels like the most natural thing in the world. And this psalm is actually quite a bit like someone's testimony that they might share in church. It's an intensely personal psalm. We get to overhear the psalmist's genuine, vulnerable first-person prayer to God. We get to hear him kind of going round and round three times, this rough sort of cycle from asking God for help to worshipping him for who he is and what he's like. That psalm, the psalm goes through that movement kind of three times in verse 1 to 8 and then 9 to 16 and then 17 to the end. Each time moving from prayer for help to a promise to praise God. And as we overhear this person talking to God, we get an amazing insight into what's in his heart and then what flows out from his heart. Because as Jesus said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, or in some other translations, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, it's it's quite a long psalm, and because it kind of goes round in these cycles, it repeats uh, the same themes at multiple different points, so we're not going to be able, uh, we don't have time to go through it kind of verse by verse uh, in detail and in order. But what we can do is take a closer look together at first, what's going on in his heart, and second, what flows out from his heart. What's going on in his heart and then what comes out of it. So let's start by taking a look at what's going on in his heart. And the first thing I want us to to see is that he is afraid. Look at verse 1. He is afraid of being shamed and attacked. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And as we go through, we get glimpses of why he's praying that. Verse 4. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. What are these cruel people doing to him? Well, if you look at verse 10 and 11... It seems like they are plotting real violence against him. But interestingly, the emphasis is on how they speak against me. That they're saying God has forsaken him. And in verse 13, he calls them his accusers as well as those who want to harm me. So he's under fire. He's under attack. But it seems like a big part of what makes it so painful for him is is the shame. The slander, the accusation. And certainly his repeated prayer in the psalm is that instead of him being put to shame unjustly, it would be these cruel people who would be put to shame deservedly. And I find verse 9 really tender and kind of vulnerable as an expression of his fear. He's afraid that as he gets older, he's not going to be able to defend himself. He's going to be too weak to face up to these cruel people. Verse 9, do not cast me away when I'm old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. And so immediately, I think this is really relatable and personal for us, isn't it? In all sorts of ways, we are afraid of shame and humiliation. Afraid of being weak. I imagine that most of us will have had a nightmare at some point about some kind of public shame or embarrassment. But it's particularly a huge thing when we think about sharing our our faith in Jesus with other people, isn't it? We did a survey a couple of years ago as a church about our experiences of speaking about Jesus and the thing that most people agreed was holding us back from talking about Jesus was fear of how people would react. And of course that might be kind of big scale fears about lasting consequences. We might fear being socially alienated or perhaps even losing our jobs or even in some cases being cut off from our families. Or sometimes it might be the much sort of smaller scale but still intensely felt fears of embarrassment and awkwardness in the moment. You know, that, that sense that if I say something about Jesus here, is the conversation just going to go totally dead and everybody's going to kind of squirm and look away? So whether it's, it's long-term or, or immediate, I think we can probably all relate to that fear of shame that we hear from the psalmist. And before we move on to the other thing that we see in his heart, can I just say, if you struggle with that, you're not alone. Like I say, most of us said that that holds us back. And actually, that fear is right here in the Bible to reassure us that we're not alone in it. And actually as well, it comes from a really legitimate concern. It's right to care what other people think about us. To not care about that that would be callous and wrong, And that fear of people reacting badly to us can actually teach us the good qualities of of wisdom and thoughtfulness and empathy and tact. But man cannot live by fear alone. If that fear is the main thing in our hearts, it will control us and it will crush us. We need something in our hearts alongside that fear that is more powerful, that drives us and motivates us more deeply than the fear does. We need the other thing that we can see in the psalmist's heart, which is faith. Trust in God. Let me read verse uh, one to three again. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. The psalm is built on this powerful image of God as his rock and his fortress, his refuge to which he can always go. God is as reliable and trustworthy as a fortress hewn from a cliff because he cannot change And he cannot be moved. And he also says God could be trusted because of his unchanging righteousness. That's a thing this psalm comes back to again and again. And it's introduced here in verse 2. And God's righteousness here fundamentally means that God is good and loyal. And he keeps his promises. And that means he is utterly trustworthy. With all the loving loyalty and tenderness of a mother. And with all the solidity of a fortress carved into a cliff. And therefore, the psalmist says in verse 5, you have been my hope since my youth. And in verse 14, he says, and as for me, I will always have hope. I have always put my trust and my hope in you, and I will always put my trust and my hope in you because you will not change. I found it really powerful reading the pastor Charles Spurgeon's uh, comments on those verses because Charles Spurgeon struggled his whole life with intense bouts of depression and the, the dark kind of hopelessness that comes with that. But writing about verse 14, he said that hope is like a bird that can sing even when perched on a branch that's covered deeply in snow. And that's such a powerful image, isn't it? A bird is such a fragile little thing. And the weather, at least for us in Britain, is incredibly unreliable, changeable, fickle. And yet, however fragile we are, however much we're surrounded by things that change and that fail us, he says we can always sing of our hope. Because our hope will not change. Because God will not change. So he wrote, we, can always, we may always hope, for we always have grounds for it. And we will always hope, for it is a never-failing consolation. So in the face of our fears, in the face even of tragedy and frustration and pain, when we feel helpless and weak like this psalmist does, even when our faith feels weak and wobbly, we can say, I might be weak, but my God is strong like a fortress. I might be fickle and faithless, but my God is righteous and loyal and faithful, and he will never abandon the one who takes refuge in him. So that's what we see in the psalmist's heart, fear. But in the midst of that fear, faith, trust in the goodness and righteousness of God. So what then do we see coming out of his heart? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what do we see overflowing from a heart that contains those things? Well, in essence, it's two things. It's prayer and it's praise. Firstly, prayer. John Calvin, the the brilliant theologian, said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And this whole psalm is an example of that. The, The psalmist is sort of climbing into the lap of a father who he trusts and pouring out his heart to him. He tells him all about what's happening. He's honest about how he's feeling and he asks him to help. I love verse 12 as a prayer. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. He processes his fears out loud in his father's presence. And I actually really love the messiness of the psalm's structure. It's a bit annoying if you're trying to preach it, but it's, it's really helpful if you're trying to be a Christian because it cycles around a few times, and that is so realistic That's so true to our experience that it's not that just we've prayed about it once and so it all goes away and it all feels fine. No, he keeps going. He keeps telling God how he's feeling, what's happening, what he needs from him. He keeps telling him why he trusts him, why God has promised to hear him and answer him. And he keeps coming all the way through that until he's got to the point of promising to praise God. And this really struck me and I couldn't resist the alliteration of it. Hopefully this will help it stick in our heads. The example of this psalm invites us to process our fears in God's presence until we can promise to praise him. We can do that in a specific kind of dedicated time of prayer where we we come to God and maybe we use verses from this psalm or other psalms to, to move through this journey of telling him how we're feeling, telling him what's going on, asking for his help. And then reminding ourselves why we trust him, why we can trust him. And getting through to the point of promising to praise him for who he is. Or actually, the psalm's really been challenging me this week to do this through the day. As I notice kind of worries and fears coming up inside me, to try and just immediately turn that into a prayer and say to God, I'm worried about this thing. Help me. And to quickly get, remind myself, I trust you and I will praise you. But however we do it, time and time again, this is the movement we're invited to make to process our fears in his presence until we can promise to praise him. Depending on his help, we can promise to praise him. And that's the second thing that we see flowing out of the psalmist's heart. Praise in every direction. And that's something I find so helpful and striking about this psalm. It's praise in every direction. Let me read verse uh, 14 to 18 again. And as I'm reading, try to work out which lines are about worshipping God at the temple and which are about telling other people about him. So verse 14, As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvellous deeds. Even when I'm old and grey, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. It's quite difficult, isn't it? I, I love that, because it's it's definitely some of both. You know, singing God's praises to God and telling God's praises to others. But there is no clear distinction between them or separation between them at all. There's loads of different words for kind of basically speak about in those verses. And some of them are definitely kind of liturgical temple worship type words. But then something like the word for declare in verse 17, to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. uh, And in verse 18, till I declare your power to the next generation... That word, when you look at everywhere else that it's used in the Old Testament, pretty much every time it just literally means tell. It comes up in all these just ordinary conversations and reports where people are just telling someone else what's happened or what's going on. It's not a very fancy or impressive word. It's just telling people. Since my youth, God, you have taught me. And to this day, I tell people your marvelous deeds. And I think that's so helpful for us to grasp. His trust in God overflows into telling out God's goodness in every direction. Spurgeon says, uh, he paraphrases it saying, I will will talk to myself and to thee, my God, and to my fellow men. You know, it's like how me and Rach talk about the office. We talk to each other about it. We talk to other people who love it. We talk to people who've never seen it about it. We, We tell out the greatness of the office in every direction because we actually love it. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that overflow just flows in all directions. So why does faith naturally overflow into talking to God about God's goodness, talking to ourselves about God's goodness, talking to other people who are Christians about God's goodness, and perhaps the one we find most difficult, talking to people who aren't Christians yet about God's goodness? Well, I think there's a logical reason, and there's a more emotional reason. And the logical one is simply this. If we actually believe what God has said to us through Jesus and in the Bible, if we trust that what he tells us is true, then we will be convinced that everyone needs to know him. And so the most loving thing we can do for them is help them to find out that he's real and he's good. I was thinking, imagine if you were alive when Jesus was walking around in Galilee healing people and you had a really serious illness. Let's say you had leprosy and you lived with other people with leprosy and you heard about Jesus and you believed that he could heal you and so you went and you cried out to him and he, he came to you and he touched you and he healed you. When you went back to your friends with leprosy, would you think, hmm, it would probably be a bit insensitive for me to mention it to them because face quite a private thing. No, no, you would tell them. And of course, Jesus said that he was a doctor, but most first and foremost, a doctor for sin. And he said that our sin is a much more serious sickness than anything physical, that it ruins our lives from the inside out and that it cuts us off from God and in the end, it leads us to death. And so as people who have found a doctor who can heal us, and who are gradually recovering with his help. Of course, we want to tell our fellow sufferers. So when I look at my mate, and I think about whether it's going to be worth it to invite them to Hope Explored, or to just say something about my own faith in conversation and ask them whether they've had much experience with church, when I think, will that just be a bit too awkward and embarrassing? If I believe what Jesus says, I won't be able to think, well... They're quite happy. They're doing fine, really. They don't really need God. I'll look at them and think, of course I want to tell them. Because they need God every bit as much as I do. Of course I don't want to keep this to myself. I want to give them every opportunity to meet him for themselves. It's totally logical. But there's also an emotional reason. I actually uh, went to a Premier League match, uh, an Aston Villa game with Rachel's family yesterday. And I can tell you that it is normal and human when we are happy to make some noise about it. When we love something or someone, whether it's a football team or whether it's a friend or whether it's one of our kids, we want to express that to them. And for exactly the same reasons, because of joy and love and loyalty, we want other people to realize how great they are too. And so with God, the same joy and love that overflows in us singing praise to him when we gather together, that exact same joy and love also naturally overflow in wanting to talk about him with other people and with each other. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let me just as a side note, encourage you, if you feel like, oh man, I'm not doing anything really to witness to God's goodness like that. Actually, worship and witness are really intermingled. And as was very likely the case uh, in Jerusalem when they sang this psalm at the temple, we as a church have the absolute joy of of welcoming regularly people uh, who are not yet Christians themselves. And if that's you here today, we're so glad that we have you with us. It's, it's wonderful that you come and join us. It's such a joy, whether you're just visiting someone or whether you're here because you're thinking these things through for yourself. And so, friends, when we come together and we worship God, that also bears witness to the goodness of God. Be encouraged. Every Sunday, when you lift your voice to praise God, you are witnessing. You are declaring his goodness. And I think it, It's actually a really beautiful witness, a powerful testimony that God is truly worth praising for all of us, all of our different lives, all of the real struggles and, and challenges that different ones of us are facing, that for every one of us, we know the same God. And we know that he is good and worth praising. But what about the rest of the week? Outside of a Sunday service, what does it look like for our faith to overflow out of our mouths with the people around us. Well, I had a really helpful conversation a while ago with one of the members of uh, the Catalyst group that meets every fortnight, and she said that the thing that's changed for her over the last kind of few years hasn't been that she's become more sort of intentional about manufacturing conversations about faith. She said, actually, what it was was that I realized that a lot of the time, I was actually filtering out stuff about God from what I was saying. She said, actually, I just, I realized all I needed to do was kind of take the filter off and and be more honest and include the stuff about God. I think there's such a profound truth in that for us because this psalm isn't asking us to manufacture artificial ways to force ourselves into talking about God. It invites us to take the filter off and be honest and authentic and stop sieving out our relationship with God from the way we talk to other people. Let me just throw out a few examples of that. Some of them will resonate more uh, with you than others. See what you want to kind of take hold of. It might be that when someone asks us how things are going for us or how our weekend was, we just actually mention something about God or something about church because that is a big part of the honest answer to their question. It might mean that in deeper conversations with someone about a particular issue or a struggle, we share something of the difference that knowing Jesus has made to us in that. It might mean, like in verse 18, telling the next generation about what God's done. Now, obviously, this should be a big encouragement to all of us who are involved in the kids and and youth ministry who are serving wonderfully in church doing that, but also in our families. You know, with kids, nieces, nephews, godchildren, grandchildren, whether they're Christian or not yet, we shouldn't underestimate the impact that it can have for a trusted older person to say, look, i tell you what, knowing Jesus has made such a massive difference to me. Let me tell you why. It might mean uh, being honest with a friend that actually if they are free for Hope Explored or or whatever it might be, it would really mean a lot to us if they could come because Jesus is really important to us and we'd love for them to get a, a chance to explore that for themselves. And just being kind of vulnerable with them and admitting that we would really like it if they would come. But it's, it's all right if they, if they can't or they don't want to. It might mean offering to pray for people more. You know, when somebody shares something that's difficult, saying, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. I, I'm trying to pray for the people in my life a bit more. Would it be okay for me to pray for you about that? And, and obviously, most of the time you can just pray about them uh, kind of privately afterwards. Sometimes people might even want you to pray with them there and then, and that's great. Or if you're someone who uses social media, you know it might look like finding ways to put something out there about it, about the difference that Jesus makes you on that. It's literally designed to help us share our lives and our stories with each other. It's such a natural place for something of the difference that Jesus makes to overflow from us. The point is that none of this is having some kind of magic technique or forcing yourself to manufacture something. It's just taking the filter off so that the faith and trust in God that really is in your heart can naturally overflow into talking about him. Now, you might be hearing that, and all you can think of is the big kind of blockages in your head, that are the reasons that you feel like you can't talk about your faith. If that's you, please don't feel just kind of guilty about that. There are lots of real obstacles and challenges. I'd encourage you, instead of feeling guilty, talk to somebody else about it. See if they have had the same uh, challenges, the same struggles. See if there's anything that helps them. Or you might be hearing this and thinking, to be honest, the issue for me is just that a lot of the time I just don't want to tell people about Jesus. My fears about this are definitely bigger and stronger than any desire that I have to talk about it. And if that's you, I don't think you should feel guilty about that either. I don't think that's going to help anyone I think what this psalm would encourage you to do is to feed your faith. To feed the faith in your heart, to fuel it so that it grows and and, and bubbles over. Look after your heart because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how do we feed faith in our hearts? How do we feed and strengthen our trust in God? Well, I think we see a wonderful example of that towards the end of this psalm. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things. Who is like you, God? So he's saying, God, your righteousness, your goodness and loyalty and love, it's revealed in the things, the great things you've done. He looks back on the past so that he can be confident about the future. And we see that in verse 20 to 21. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. So he looks back on what God has done to look forward with confidence. He's looking back specifically, I think, to the Exodus. And there's almost a quote from that in verse 19, who is like you, God? But we're actually in an even more privileged position. We get to look back on something that's even greater than the Exodus, but also something that's closer to our own experience of fear and shame because we look back at, at Jesus' suffering and death and his resurrection. Friends, if we're afraid of shame and humiliation or if we're going through it right now, we can look at Jesus on the cross. He willingly allowed himself to go through the worst version of everything the psalmist fears, everything that we fear. He became totally helpless, genuinely abandoned, And he was mocked and and spat on and stripped naked. He was shamed beyond our worst nightmares. He took our shame onto himself. So that right now, when people try to shame us, all they can do is remind us that we're in the same boat as our king, as our big brother, when the world plunges us into its deepest pit, we find our savior right there. That all our shame is just sharing in his shame. And, and then he took our shame so that he could take it away forever. And instead he could cover us with honor and glory. Like it says in verse 21, you will increase my honor and comfort me once more. We can look at Jesus dying for us and rising for us and know that if we take refuge in him, In the end, when we see him face to face, we will be vindicated and even honored. When the day comes that the the secrets of every heart are brought out into the light, we will have nothing to be ashamed of. It actually, weirdly, makes me think of Toy Story 3. Rachel will tell you that almost everything makes me think of Toy Story 3. But I find that film really powerful, and I think it's because of this. All the way through the film, Woody is insisting to the other toys that they can trust their kid, Andy, that he really does care about them, he really does love them, even though he's grown up and he has to go to college, but the other toys don't believe him. So for the whole film, Woody's kind of an outsider, and, and the other people kind of turn on him, there are all these enemies attacking them, telling them that Andy does not care. But in the end, and this is a spoiler alert, but to be honest, we all knew it was coming, they get back to Andy... And because he is going to college, he does need to give them away, but he gives them to this girl called Bonnie, and there's this beautiful end scene. And when I first watched it, I was actually in bits. But Andy, he takes the toys out of the box one by one, and he shows them to Bonnie, and he tells her how brilliant they are. He tells her why he loves them. And last of all, he takes Woody out of the box, and he says, now, Woody. He's been my pal for as long as I can remember. He's brave like a cowboy should be and he's smart and he's kind but the thing that makes Woody so special is that he'll never give up on you. And they play with them together for one last time. Friends, it's just a tiny, silly, silly echo of what is waiting for us if we trust in Jesus. We might fear all kinds of ways of being humiliated and embarrassed and ashamed but the truth is right now the God of the universe delights in us and one day he is going to delight in us publicly. One day we're going to stand before his throne and he is going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And all of the pain of the shame and humiliation that we've ever gone through is going to melt away in the warmth of his smile. Friends, feed on that in your heart. Feed your faith on the fact of what God's already done for us in Jesus and the certainty of what he will do when we see him face to face. And let that grow and overflow. Let it overflow in prayer. Process your fears in his presence until you can promise to praise him and ask him to help you to take the filter off so that you can promise to praise him in all directions, to sing out his righteousness and to speak about what he has done for you. So in a second, I'm gonna leave us just like a minute of quiet to pray and reflect on what we've heard and, and to think about one of three things. If you're somebody who hasn't yet put your trust in God, Let me just encourage you to spend that minute reflecting on why not. Given what God's done for you in Jesus, given how much he loves you, what is holding you back from entrusting yourself to him? Is it that you're, you're not sure that he, he's real? Is it that you're not convinced that he's trustworthy? What is it? And let me challenge you after we've sung our final hymn to, to talk about that with somebody that you trust. Ask them if they can relate to what's holding you back. Ask them if uh, they might have any thoughts about it. Or if you're a Christian, but um, you've realized that often you don't want to tell anyone about Jesus, why not take this minute to ask yourself why that is? And what you've heard from this psalm that might speak to that. You might want to reflect on how you might feed your faith in this Jesus going forwards. Or thirdly, if you're thinking, yes, I do really want to tell people about this stuff, take this minute to reflect on... uh, what of the, maybe of the things I've sort of suggested concretely from this psalm, what might you want to try and take up and put into practice? So then let's, give, let's have a minute just to pray and reflect and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much that you came to face shame worse than our most horrendous nightmares. And you did it so that we would never, ever, ever be alone and so that you could cover us with honor and comfort us once more. Help us to trust you. And please send your Holy Spirit, fill us afresh with your spirit so that that might overflow in praise to you and praise before everyone around us. Amen.